Open up to Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4 as we continue on in part 4 on our series on wisdom. And as we have so often throughout this series, we'll be using this as kind of a jumping off point to several different places in Scripture. I like to begin my sermons with something that kind of jump starts your brain along the, the lines of what we're going to be talking about. And sometimes I'll use an imaginary story, something I want you to just sort of imagine. Uh, sometimes I'll use something from history or literature. Occasionally I like to use things from my own life. So today I've got a story from my own life, but I feel like I need to preface it by saying this is probably one of the most embarrassing things in my life. Um, and, and not embarrassing in a cause you to blush sort of way, but in an embarrassing in sort of way of that was a huge mistake sort of way. It's not only something in my life, but I would say something in my ministry that when I look back on it, I think, what in the world was I doing? Uh, this was a huge mistake. I was taking a group of students on a short-term mission trip from South Bend, Indiana, where I was a youth pastor, up to Sault Ste. Marie, Michigan. How many of you know where Sault Ste. Marie is? Yeah, it's, it looks like Salt Ste. Marie. It took me a while to realize it's Sioux. So you go up, if, if you have Michigan, right, if you hold up your left hand, that's the state of Michigan. It's kind of a mitten. And uh, we were kind of down here on the, the wrist bone, I suppose. That would be about where South Bend is. And basically, we just had to go up the, the side of Michigan here, the western side, and, and Sault Ste. Marie is kind of up, up at the very tip of your finger. That would be where it was, say, about a seven-hour drive. We made it up there, no problem, had a wonderful week. It was a great experience, got to work with kids at a community center. It's a unique uh, community because there's a, a very large penitentiary there. And a lot of the kids of their community are there because their families moved there because somebody in their family is incarcerated there. And so it's a unique group of kids to work with. Uh, and so we did kind of a VBS with them. We did some building projects. We got to tour the area a little bit. And so we leave and we're coming home and I, I try to plan. I, I consider myself fairly uh, good, at least at planning, try to be. And had laid out, we need to leave by this time, give ourselves a little bit of extra time for meals and what have you. And we start going, and basically, again, we just needed to go down the left side of the mitten. We just needed to go down the western side of Michigan. It's a fairly straight shot. Unfortunately, there's no real main highways up in upper Michigan there. Sort of state highways and backcountry roads. Beautiful area. And so we start going, and along the way, there are road closures. And so you get to a point, and it says, road up ahead is closed, here's the detour, and then you have to make a choice. Am I going to go that way? There's the detour, but that's not really the way I want to go. I, I kind of want to go that way. And I would look at the map, and I would say, okay, over there is another road that would get me there, and that's going to take me way out of the way. And so I was faced with a decision. I, I consider myself somewhat intelligent. I'm not a complete idiot, uh, I, I think. Maybe I'm fooling myself. And, and, but at each time, I would make a decision, and then I would go that way, and then there'd be another road closure, or another detour, or another traffic jam, or an accident. And each point along the way, we, my, one of the youth, I think, was in the front row, or front row, the front seat, and uh, he would look at the map, and we'd make a decision. Okay, we'll, we'll go that way. After a while, I saw a sign. It said, 30 minutes, or 30 miles, to Detroit. Okay, so again, Mitten, right? <laughs> South Bend's over here. We're up here. Detroit's way over here. It's all the way on the other side of the state. 
What should have taken seven hours took 13. So picture a parking lot filled with cars of parents. And they're waiting for this foolish youth pastor to bring their kids home. And they're getting periodic updates. We'll be there in two hours, three hours, four hours, five hours. We're six hours late. This was not a shining moment in my career. Now again, I look back on that, and even today, I I would like to be able to say that I could pinpoint a time and say, that was where I made a wrong turn. That was where I just did something selfish and stupid and unreasonable. But as I think about the turns that we made and why we made those decisions, I can't point to any one of those things and say, that was a horrible decision. Why would I ever make that decision? I collected the information I had at my disposal. We didn't have GPS at that time, or maybe I just couldn't afford one. I don't know, but I didn't have one. But it wasn't like I ignored the maps. We were looking at the maps. I don't think that I was making bad decisions along the way. Obviously, now I think I made some bad decisions along the way. But see, there's a difference. Because in that moment, I was looking at a road that way, that way, and that way, and making a decision. Now, I'm looking at a map and saying, whoa, what in the world was I doing? It was way out of the way. I had lost sight of the big picture. I had lost sight of the fact that the journey from Sault Ste. Marie to South Bend wasn't just about every single intersection and making a decision. It was about a way from there, point A to point B. And I lost sight of that somewhere along the way. That's what we're going to be speaking about today, the way of wisdom. What is the way of wisdom? So let's read Proverbs chapter 4. Verses 1 through 13. You can follow along in your Bible. If you don't have one, feel free to use the one in the pew in front of you. Uh, If you really don't have one and would like one, go ahead and take that one. That's our gift to you. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention. Gain understanding. I give you sound learning. So do not forsake my teaching. For I too was a son to my father, still tender and cherished by my mother. Then he taught me and he said to me, take hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. Do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Though it cost all you have, get understanding. Cherish her and she will exalt you. Embrace her and she will honor you. She will give you a garland to grace your head and present you with a glorious crown. Listen, my son, accept what I say and the years of your life will be many. I instruct you in the way of wisdom and lead you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hampered. When you run, you will not stumble. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, for it is your life. There's a lot in this passage I don't think we really need to understand. It's pretty obvious. Wisdom is important. You need to learn wisdom. You need to grow in wisdom. I think we hear those things and we think, of course, of course. I want to be wise. I want to grow in my wisdom. I get it. But then we get to verse 11 and we see, I instruct you in the way of wisdom. And I think we can struggle here. I think we can struggle to understand wisdom as a way. 
You see, I think there's two types of wisdom. And they're both good. They're both important. But one type of wisdom is what I would call wisdom for the moment. You're faced with a decision. You weigh all the options. And in wisdom, you make a choice. That's what I was doing in the car ride from Sault Ste. Marie to South Bend. Wisdom for the moment. The ability to make good decisions, to weigh the situation and decide. Now, hopefully you can look at your own life and say, yes, I I value that. I think that in each moment I should make a good decision. Maybe you know people in your life that you know can make good decisions. And maybe sometimes those people aren't even Christians. And you say, I look at their life and man, they're just, they're wise. They make really good decisions in the moment. And then we come across a verse like Psalm 14.1 that is so harsh. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. And we, we hear that in scripture and then we look at our friend's life and we say, wait a minute, I, they're pretty smart. They make wise decisions. Well, yes, they make wise decisions. They're good at wisdom in the moment. They're good at weighing the options in front of them and making a wise choice. Wisdom for the moment is the ability to make good decisions along the way of our life. But here's the question. Along what way? That's the difference between wisdom for the moment and this big picture of the way of wisdom that the Bible describes. It's another question. It's not just looking at options in front of us. It's asking the big question, what's The way. Not just the best moment right now, but the way. And so we have the way of wisdom, as Proverbs 4.11 says. Now I want to review a little bit of where we've come, because we're trying to, or at least I'm trying to set this up as we go. We started with the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom. We said wisdom has to start with an acknowledgement of who God is, that He is God, we are not. He is great and powerful over all things. We look the next week at his great wisdom that he knows all things. His power, is, his wisdom is beyond our comprehensibility. He is amazing. We looked at statements in scripture like he holds the waters of the earth in the palm of his hand. And it puts us in perspective to say if he is that great and he says this is the way the world works, that's a huge difference between me saying, I know how this world works. I know best. When you put our decisions and our preferences, in the light of God's greatness, it becomes very foolish to listen to ourselves. And then we looked at God's wise plan, that God's not just up in heaven throwing darts at a board saying, hey, let's see what we should do today. Oh, we'll try this today. Whoops, that didn't work. We'll do something tomorrow. No, he has a plan from beginning to the end. He knows what he's doing. He's not making this up as he goes. And so we come to today. If God is who he says he is, and we are to fear him. If he is as great as he says he is, and his wisdom is beyond what we can fathom, and he does have a plan, then it is unwise to simply live our life and ignore that or reject it. Because he made everything. And so we stand at a crossroads. Look at chapter 4, verse 14 of Proverbs. Do not set foot on the path of the wicked, or walk in the way of evildoers. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn from it and go on your way. For they cannot rest until they do evil. 
They are robbed of sleep till they make someone stumble. They eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. The path of the righteous is like a morning, is like the morning sun shining ever brighter till the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Here we're confronted in scripture with a choice that there are two ways. We can go God's way or any other way. That's the two choices that we're confronted with. We started this series by looking at this picture here of sort of this, this, uh, all these train tracks and this mess of how do you know what's the right way to go? How do we apply biblical wisdom to our day-to-day lives when we have all of these choices, all of these options? And we looked at the multiplication of those options as information multiplies in this world, which it is doing at a fascinating rate. And it's overwhelming. But then scripture says, when you really come down to it, there aren't 5,000 options. There's two. There's God's way and then everything else. And it takes something so difficult to understand and it makes it very simple. Let's look at these two ways. In this confrontation of these choices and understanding we stand at a crossroads each and every moment in our life. It it is described as two paths, and I think we can understand that. A path leads somewhere. It has a destination. There's experiences along the way. By choosing one path, it necessarily means we're not going the other direction. And so we see this in chapter 411 as we looked at it. It says, I'll instruct you in the way of wisdom. In verses 14 uh, through 15, it talks about the way of or the path of the wicked or of evildoers. It is a way we are not to go, but are rather to to stay on the path of wisdom. The path of wisdom is acknowledging who God is. It recognizes that He has the right, He has the wisdom, He has the strength to say this is the way to go. It, It is a path of trusting Him. It is a path of faith. It is a path that is lived in obedience to him. If we trust him, we're going to step where he says to step. We're going to not step where he says not to step. And so I think we can understand these two paths. But there's another image that's used in Scripture of these two ways that I think helps us to understand this as well. Turn to Proverbs chapter 9. Flip a couple pages to the right. Proverbs chapter 9. And here, in Proverbs 9, and and many other places in Proverbs and elsewhere in Scripture, instead of describing two paths, we are presented with two women. We start with the lady wisdom, verses 1 through 6. Wisdom has built her house. She has set up its seven pillars. She has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her servants. And she calls from the highest point of the city, Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, Come, eat my food, and drink the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways, and you will live. Walk in the way of insight. Look at what is said about this woman. She has a well-built house. She has set it up with its seven pillars. There's a lot of different philosophical, cultural things that that could be alluding to. But if you put it all together, seven is the number of completion. This is a good house. She has a nice house. This is the house of somebody that is successful, maybe important, or even wealthy. This is not a lowly woman. This is a woman of prestige. 
She has set up her house well, and she has prepared, put effort into a fine meal, a banquet. This is a banquet that was a, an immense social gathering that everybody would want to be invited to. And if you were really important, you would probably be invited. If you were crazy wealthy, of course you'd be invited. And what does she do? She sends her servants out into the city to call out, let all who are simple come to my house. And what does it mean to be simple? Because that sounds offensive. I don't know if, if my wife would feel like I really love her if I go up to her and just go, oh, you're so simple. I don't think that would go over well. I don't know that there's many Hallmark greeting cards. Hey, way to be simple. And so we feel it as offensive, but we need to understand in Scripture that the term simple itself is not offensive. It's somebody that, for whatever reason, doesn't know something. And that's okay. But they could know it, and hopefully they want to know it. They could learn, and hopefully they want to learn. They're just naive. Now, if they stay in their simplicity, if they're given the opportunity to learn, but they choose not to, well, then they've turned a corner. They're no longer simple. They're foolish. And that's different. But simple, I mean, let's face it. There's some things in my life, don't tell my kids, but there's a few things I probably don't know that I might actually be wrong on. Shh, don't, don't tell anybody. That's true of all of us, isn't it? When I think of simple... I think of a friend in college. His name was Corey. And, and we were freshmen on the streets of Chicago. I went to Moody Bible Institute right downtown Chicago. I had grown up around Chicago. I wasn't like a city kid. But I knew Chicago had gone in many times uh, into the city with my family. I knew the city a little bit. My friend Corey was from, it was either Oregon or Washington State. I can't remember which. But he was kind of from out in the middle of nowhere. He was a country boy, really nice guy, super smart. Very intelligent, very musical, just a great guy. We were good friends. But we went out early on in our freshman year onto the streets of Chicago, and, and I looked down the sidewalk, and I saw a guy heading toward us, and he had a spray bottle in one hand and a rag in the other, and I knew what was coming. This guy wanted to shine our shoes. That was his thing. And he was eyeing us, and you could see dollar signs in his, his vision. These suckers are walking down the street. And he walks up to us, and in one swift motion, he bends down. He says, I'm going to shine your shoes. The first one's free. And he went to go for my shoes. And I took a step back, and I put a hand on his shoulder, and I said, no. I said, no, thank you. I don't want my shoes shined. No, 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 first one's free. And he started to do it. I said, no. I said, I will not pay you. Do not shine my shoes. So he quickly, again, in one move, he said, okay. And he went to my friend, and he sprayed on his shoe. Now, Corey had, like, suede shoes. You don't shine suede. Okay? It, it ruins it. And so this guy, he, he, he sprayed and buffed the first two inches of the toe of Corey's left shoe. And my friend Corey, he's so sweet. He doesn't want to hurt anybody. He didn't want to offend this kindly soul. I was past that point. Uh, I didn't really care. Uh, and so my friend's like, oh, oh, well, you know, now they look different. The guy goes, no problem. I'll do the other one. He does it. Same thing, two inches on the front. Basically, I think, ruining the shoes. My friend Corey backs up. And at this point, I'm saying, Corey, come on, let's go. You don't have to pay this guy. You didn't ask for this. Let's go. This is a scam. And Corey says, okay, well, how much do I owe you? And the guy says, 20 bucks per shoe. Just like that. He paused to see if Corey would answer. And then he says, per shoe. Now, he had said the first one was free. 
My friend Corey pulled out $40 out of his wallet, handed it to the guy, and we walked away. That's simplicity. Six months down the road, Corey would not have done that. He would have done what I did and just said, no, (laughs) it's not grace, it's not love to give in to those things. It's just simple. Corey learned over the time. There were things, there were boundaries you had to put in place. It's not wrong to be simple. But I love this picture of this lady wisdom. In her prestige and her power and maybe even her her financial resources, she could have gone to anybody and said, come and sit with me and eat around my table. But she goes out and she says, if you're simple, I want you to come. I want you to eat with me. I've prepared this for you. She offers them something better than what they have. She's offering not only food, but insight and wisdom. She says, I'll help you. But then we're introduced to another woman. Look down at verse 13. Folly is an unruly woman. She is simple and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house on the seat at the highest point of the city, calling out to those who pass by, who go straight on their way. Let all who are simple come to my house. To those who have no sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. Food eaten in secret is delicious. But little do they know that the dead are there and that her guests are deep in the realm of the dead. Here we have Lady Folly. She has put her house at one of the busiest places in the city. Why? Because it's not only her house, it's also her place of business. And she wants a crowd. She's not going out into the streets. She's just sitting outside her house and she's watching for people to pass by and saying, you, come on, come in with me. Come into my house. You see, this in Scripture is clearly in this culture a picture of a prostitute. Saying, just come on. Just, just come in for a moment. She doesn't have a banquet prepared. In verse 17, where it says, stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious. She's not talking about food. That which is stolen, which is not the person, that which, which should not be taken from someone else, is not talking about food. It's saying, this is not your wife. But it doesn't matter. Just come on in. She doesn't confront their simplicity. She doesn't offer them anything better. If anything, she is, she is enticing them in their simplicity and saying, no, it's fine. Stay just the way you are. I won't offend you. I won't hurt you. I won't rebuke you. I won't confront you. Just come on in. And why are there two women? Why women? I mean, this is just sexist. But think about it. If you go back to the beginning of Proverbs, who was Proverbs written by and who was it written to? It was written by a father, at least was collected by a father for his son. Probably the prince, who would one day be a king. And as a father, don't we want our men to make good choices in who they marry? And again, I'm not saying this isn't true for our women. Hopefully our daughters make good choices too. But the situation here, I love in Proverbs that it's using something that was already on this kid's heart and mind. Let's be honest. It was on his mind all the time. And it's using that to say, make a good choice. Because it makes a huge difference for the rest of your life. Now look, I do think this is teaching this child to choose a wife wisely. But it's also going beyond that and saying it's a bigger decision as well. Are you going to choose wisdom or folly? There are two ways. And we stand each and every moment at that crossroads. 
This concept of two ways is all over Scripture. In Genesis chapter 2, we're confronted with two trees. And Adam and Eve are told to not choose the one. Don't go that way. Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then if we skip down to verses 15 through 17, The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the, the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Right here at the beginning of creation, Adam and Eve are offered two ways. They could trust God and freely take from the life that he gives, freely enjoy the life that he gives in all of creation, all the trees, everything in creation. But that one thing he said, don't take from this tree. And it's more than just a fruit as we looked at in Sunday school. It's, it's, it's the decision to say, I have the right to determine good and evil. And God says, that's not your way. That's God's way, alone. If we flip forward to Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30, we have the giving of the law. And after the law is given, the people are confronted with a choice. Moses says to them, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 15 through 18, See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience with Him, and to keep His commands, decrees, and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, If you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you are crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. So here they are in their sinful, rebellious state, but God has graciously reached in, reestablished that relationship. And he says, I want to teach you about myself. I'm going to teach you what it means to be in a relationship. And he gave them his law and he said, you need to trust me and walk in this way. No other. Another place this comes up is Joshua chapter 24. After they had wandered in the wilderness and they come back to the promised land and God through his sovereign power had enabled them to retake their promised land, their inheritance, Joshua confronts the people and he says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. I love the choice that he gives them. It's kind of like he's saying, remember those gods in Egypt? Remember the plagues and how God showed that he was immensely more powerful than those fake gods that don't even exist? Yeah, you could choose to worship them. Have you seen the temples and the land that we just conquered that our God just proved that he was more powerful than these people and any God, any false God that they worship? Well, you could choose to worship them too. Or you could worship the one true God who has demonstrated his authority and his power over and over and over again. And Joshua says, "Yeah, I don't know about you, But as for me, in my house, 
we're going to serve the Lord. Two ways and a choice. You might say, well, this is an Old Testament concept. I mean, where do we see this in the New Testament? Well, Jesus says it. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. There it is. Two ways. Choose wisely. But now we might be tempted to think, okay, well, I'm standing here and I see the two ways and I just need to decide each and every day, am I going to step that way or that way? I can make that decision. I will be the one that determines where my life goes. But see, things begin to change. In John chapter 10, Jesus says this, Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. So now not only are there two ways, but the one way, God's way, has an entrance. It has a gate. It has a place that you have to start, and that starting point is Jesus Christ. And then, of course, probably the most famous statement by Jesus on this topic, John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the way. We don't get to make it up. We don't get to just choose which way we want to go. He is the way. Not only do we enter into that way through believing in Jesus Christ, but we walk through that way in relationship with Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the way of God, the wisdom of God, and the way of wisdom. This comes up again in Revelation. There's too many passages, frankly, to even put up there. But in Revelation, again, we see two women. We see the bride of Christ, the church, the people saved by Jesus. And then we see a prostitute called the prostitute of Babylon, a symbol of the world's ways and the world's system and worldly ways of thinking. And at the end of Revelation, only one woman remains. We see two ways and they're presented to us in two system, or two cities. One is the New Jerusalem and the other one is Babylon. And at the end of Revelation, only one remains. There are two ways presented so often in Scripture. God's way, the way of wisdom, and then the way of folly. And we need to make sure that we're not so busy just trying to be wise in each individual circumstance, though we must be, but that we understand there's a much bigger picture going on. Both wisdom and folly are calling out to us. These are not neutral things in our world. God is calling out to us through His Scripture. His Holy Spirit is at work in this world. The Gospel is going forth in power. Folly is also calling out. I think we see it every time we turn on the TV. I think we read about it in our newspapers. It oozes out of our culture and all the society and cultural gatherings. It's all over. And we, we need to be careful that we understand that these voices are coming out us constantly. We do not live in a neutral world. And then finally, There are steps to be taken along the way. 
By saying that there are just two ways and that we have to choose the right way and accept who Jesus is and trust in God, we cannot then just ignore all of our day-to-day decisions. If anything, they become more important because they become steps along the way. There's a context to them. Look back at chapter 4, Proverbs chapter 4, verses 20 through 27. My son, pay attention to what I say. Turn your ears to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to one's body. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Keep your eye, or let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Do not turn from the, li- the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. Walking in the way of wisdom is not just a one-time choice. When you walk along the path of God's way, when you've trusted to Him and you're in a relationship with Him, each and every decision becomes another opportunity to keep walking on that step or make a bad decision and walk the wrong way. It really puts disobedience in perspective. It's not just a momentary bad decision. It's going the wrong direction. My mistakes on that mission trip in Michigan were not fatal. Nobody died. Some parents were mad at me, rightly so. But what if you're driving your car and there was a sign that says, turn left and down this road you will die. Turn right and down this road you will live. Well, that's a much easier decision, isn't it? I mean, that's kind of a no-brainer. I'm going to go the way of life. That's the option that is laid out for us in Scripture. Are we going to trust God's way or our own way? But we also have to understand we live in a world that can't understand this way of wisdom. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18, Paul writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the wisdom, or the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand a sign, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. My friends, the way of wisdom, God's wisdom, is not natural. It's not easy. It doesn't appeal necessarily to our common sense. It's not always going to make sense to us. When I was on that road and making decisions which way to go, I went the way that made sense to me. And in all of my sense, I was very wrong. So often I speak with people that are struggling to understand Christ, struggling to grow in their relationship with Christ, and they'll see something in Scripture and they'll say, well, this doesn't make sense. Of course it doesn't. Because we're walking our own way. And that way makes perfect sense to us. 
And the way that God is saying will often confront us, rebuke us, and say we're wrong, and we don't like hearing that. It doesn't fit with what we do. And so we'll want to ignore it. But Paul says right here in 1 Corinthians, God's way is different than the way of this world. So what do we do with this? I think we need to have the response of Joshua. Choose this day. And every day. In every decision. Not just to make a wise decision, but to make that decision as an act of worship saying, I am trusting God and I am following His way. But I also want to be clear. This doesn't make every decision easy. I want to be careful that we don't oversimplify every decision. As if, if this is your mentality that I just want to follow God and not the world, that suddenly every decision becomes absolutely abundantly clear that this is the right way. It's not, it doesn't work that way. Sometimes we have to do the best with the, the information that's right in front of us. But as we walk in that way, if we can do it as an act of worship to God, and say, God, if I'm wrong, correct me, confront me, rebuke me. But we also have to recognize the way of folly. There's always an easier way. There's a way that won't challenge us, won't confront us. It's a way that says, come on. Come on, you can stay just the way you are. That is not God's way. God's wisdom calls out. It is revealed in Scripture it is shown to us, embodied for us in Jesus Christ, the Word and the wisdom of God, died for us, rose again, and shows us the way of eternal life. And maybe you're here today and you're hearing these things and you're thinking, I get it. I, I see the foolishness of the way that I'm on, but I am so far down that path and the way of God is so far way over there. You see, when I saw that sign for Detroit, and I realized that we were about four hours out of our way, there was no easy way back. I had to drive it. I knew I was going to be late at that time. I just had to own up to it. And I realized I was in big trouble. And there was no other way back than to just do the work. It's different in Christ. Because the Bible says in Christ Jesus, you who are dead in your sins, through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, you are plucked out of that path. And He carries you and deposits you on the path of life. And He says, now walk with me. That's the way back. At every moment of our lives, Jesus is there saying, I'm the gate, come through me. If you're so far down that path that you can't see any way back, listen today and hear, the way back is Jesus Christ. And the step that you have to take is simply the step to choose Him instead of your own way. And then you will be brought from death to life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we live in the way of wisdom. May we open Your Scripture in humility and hear the rebuke of wisdom's call in our life. To hear when we're going the wrong way. Things that might make so much sense to us and yet to hear your truth and say, okay, I will trust you and not me. May we understand that our lives are to be lived along this way of wisdom in relationship with you, understanding the big picture. And then may every moment that we make decisions come out of that decision. These are steps along the way of wisdom kept in context. They become opportunities for worship 
and obedience. And God, I pray as we follow you, as we walk the way of wisdom together, struggling along this way, I pray that we would be a light for others to see. And that we could reach out to them with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they may too may be brought from death to life and walk your way in your presence, the path of life. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.